This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of four, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 67. We are going to be talking about emotional labor with guest and Gemma Hartley, who's just written a book on that topic called Fed Up. So we are really excited to speak with her about uh, emotional labor, what that means, uh, what it means for couples, uh, what it means for women in general, uh, and how we move forward from here. Um, so we've, uh, I have a funny note from Sarah, who had once told me that she never suffers from planning fatigue. And now it seems that Sarah has planning fatigue. You want to unpack that for us? <laughs> Yeah, I have had some planning fatigue. And now I know what you mean. Because when you asked me, I didn't really. But we've had a lot going on. And I've done some deep 
thinking about why all of a sudden things are feeling more overwhelming. And interestingly, I think this is a great and timely topic considering our guest today. But I think it has to do, as many things do, with with the baby and the fact that typically I'm a morning planner and I like to get up really early and I have really good kind of laser-focused planning type power in the morning. Like I can really think through a lot of things very quickly and I haven't had those nice rested mornings. And when I try to get up early, a lot of the time she still beats me to it, even if it's 4 a.m. And you know, that is what it is. And maybe I will get to that magical sleep training place or sleep resolution place. But right now it's just been less time to sit there and actually go through things in a timely manner. And it's just made it harder. So I'm finding those loose ends and those to do items and the mounting, you know, requests from both of my kids' schools, just more difficult than they have previously. And my kind of mojo to sit there and think about what I want to do in a given weekend has been less fun and more just like, oh, another thing. So I guess I'm having planning fatigue. Yeah. So how are you getting through it? Because uh, I, I sort of, you know, made sure to, to delegate some of the major, major planning things that I was not wanting to do and uh, kind of not taking on stuff. I mean, that was certainly part of it and accepting that some weekends weren't going to be well-planned. I have been. And for example, we, um, last weekend, um, my husband was on call and I didn't really bother to like look at his schedule. We had a bat mitzvah to go do. And I normally what I would have done probably weeks in advance is realized you're on call. You need to change your schedule, but I just haven't had time to do that. And I'm like, whatever, I don't care. It's not my problem. And so when he realized it, he figured out how he could handle it. Um, and that would have been something that I would have dealt with for better or for worse. Um, I also have been delegating specific things. Now our guests will probably say, well, the fact that you say that you have to delegate them is emotional labor to begin with, but whatever. It, 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 it's a survival tactic. And my daughter had a an, yet another fairly involved first grade project involving the creation of a bottle buddy doll and a country report with various facts. And I just told him that he was doing it. And it was great because I, you know, he was fine with it. And then I just completely erased it from my existence. Like I just didn't think about it anymore. Whereas even in the future, even if I had asked them to do it, I probably would have been like, note to self, still putting it in my planner, make a box to follow up, make sure it's done. No. So I'm being more, more aggressive about my delegation, I guess. Um, and sometimes I'm just dealing with the consequences of less planning. We didn't really like have any planned ahead anchor events this past weekend, but it actually turned out fine. We had a family over, we got takeout, we went to Target, we enjoyed it. We did that together. Um, and it was fine. And then finally, I've been leaving a lot, um, and Laura can attest to this because this includes some of our podcast prep, to my days off. Like I just can't necessarily get to them during the week. If I can, I can. But if I can't, then I know that like I'm going to have the mornings when I'm off. My nanny is here. That's like my time to catch up on all the kinds of things that I don't get to do other times. So it might mean working less far in advance or triaging a little bit more, but kind of letting things slide until my next day off. Yeah. And I mean, I think that the way you and I tend to plan our lives, there's a fair amount of slack in there if we stop planning stuff. I mean, pretty quickly, my husband and I had our calendar meeting last night and we were already looking at like stuff at the end of November and December and figuring out potential, you know, weekend conflicts that, you know, the kids have multiple things at once. And I'm like, wow, you know, it's good. I think that we're looking at it. But on the other hand, like we'd probably still be able to deal with it the week of. (laughs) 
if we needed to. Um, and and so there, there's some aspect of this that we're so far ahead planned that it it just uh, it, there there is quite a bit of space to to deal with you know problems if we then don't plan. Um, I was saying with this podcast, uh, you know, we had our, our guest schedule. It's not like you know we didn't have a guest schedule and we're scrambling to figure out an episode. And by the way, these episodes aren't airing till November and we're recording them in October. So it's, uh, you know, the, the planning thing is um, we, we may be pretty far on the spectrum of, of what normal people might do. <laughs> yeah. There is slack built in so that it's actually, you know, the world doesn't fall apart if on a given weekend, it's just like, eh, we're just going to let chips fall because you're right. I mean, I still have like multiple date nights planned for November. Like there, there are things that I had set up previously. I mean, if, if I were in the slump forever, then yes, in January, we could start to have issues where I think we'd get pretty burned out, but then maybe that would motivate me to get my planning mojo back. Um, or maybe our guest, Gemma, is going to teach me how to share this uh, duty a little bit better. And um, I think that's a good segue. Yeah. Let's see what she has to say. Well, we are so excited to welcome Gemma Hartley to the podcast today. Uh, Gemma is the author of the book Fed Up, which is out today when this is airing November 13th. So that's really exciting to have her on for this. Uh, she lives in Nevada and is the mother of three children, young children. Um, and a lot of people got to know Gemma when she wrote an article for Harper's Bazaar a little over a year ago about emotional labor, that women aren't nags, we're just fed up. So that's where the fed up title comes from. So Gemma, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Anything else you want to tell our listeners about your life, your setup um, that I didn't say in the intro there? Um, I think that about covers it. I'm in Nevada. I'm taking care of three young kids and, you know, writing. Writing. This is wonderful. So we're very, you know, this this idea of emotional labor is definitely something people are talking about a lot more now than in the past. What exactly is it? How do you define emotional labor? So when I'm defining emotional labor, I'm talking about all of the invisible sort of behind the scenes work that women are doing to keep everyone on track and to keep everyone comfortable while they're keeping them on track. It's the scheduling the doctor's appointments, planning the holidays, reminding your partner to do the dishes, but making sure you don't do it in a way that's nagging. And it's not so much the tasks themselves, but the fact that it's on a constant loop in your head because you're the only one that thinks about these things. Okay. The, the, so it's the thinking about the, so it could encompass planning. It could be relationship management. It could be household management, all the, all the thinking about it, I guess. Is that what you'd say? Would you, and would you say it's sort of the feeling of being in charge or being the ultimate one responsible, um, even if you're not the one executing? Yes, absolutely. It's about being the one who thinks about all these things and makes sure that they get done. So, you might have a partner that does half of all the housework, but you're the one that's saying, hey, remember to do the dishes, remember to call your mom, remember to do this, because you're sort of the brain for the whole family. And I think a lot of moms can relate to that. So one, um, you know, on my blog, this is Laura, by the way, on the, on the on my blog and sometimes on this podcast, one of the solutions we often suggest when there's inequality in a situation like this 
is to care less <laughs> um, so that the person who cares less uh, winds up doing less. Now, in your book, though, Fed Up, you seem to suggest that this isn't necessarily the way to go on a lot of this emotional labor stuff. Why, why is that? So I'm really against the whole let it go uh, mindset, which has been really popular in feminist literature for the past few years, that if we don't want to live up to this standard or if our partners don't want to live up to the standard, that we should just let it all go. And I think that really undermines the work that we're doing in emotional labor. It says that it's not important, that it can be easily given up, and that no one will suffer in any way when you do that. And I think the main reason that I am against this, other than it devaluing our work, is that it doesn't demand any change of our partners. It's saying, you have a problem, so you need to fix it. And I don't think that that's a really great solution when you're looking for more equality in your relationship. You shouldn't have to make all of the compromises while your partner does nothing to change. So that that has a good sort of theoretical idea to it. But I mean, I guess one of the reasons we do say the care less is that it's the easiest way to, to get to the equality. So if you're saying that's not the way to go... What are some practical ways to get a partner to take on more of this emotional labor that you're talking about? Well, I think one of the most important things is that we have a vocabulary to talk about this. So I'm hoping that my book really gives us the language we need to describe the type of work that we're doing and why it's important, why it's exhausting, and why we need our partners to step up and take equal initiative. So I think a lot of it has to do with having a really open, honest conversation about the inequality that you feel in your relationship. And that can often lead to defensiveness. A lot of the times I hear men saying, well, I do so much. And usually when they're saying that, they're saying, I do so much compared to the men I know. And I think we really need to shift the conversation from comparing men to other men to comparing yourself to your partner? Is it really equal within the home? Is it equal within your relationship? And yeah. is, you know, one of the things we we also hear from, you know, some of our listeners is, I'd like to share more of this, but I worry he wouldn't do it the way I think it should be done. Uh, and I know you write some about this sort of gatekeeping idea. Do you think this is something that plays into the emotional labor conversation? I think it absolutely is. I think that women are really conditioned toward perfectionism. And so there is this very specific way that we want things done. Now, a lot of the times, those expectations that we have are reasonable. They're based in what is the most efficient way to do this, what keeps everyone comfortable and happy. Those are standards you should keep. And then you have to sort of reevaluate, so what things am I doing that are just for the sake of control, for the sake of perfectionism? What do I feel like I should do that maybe is not necessary or not helpful? So when you're creating that shared standard, it doesn't mean throwing out everything that you do. It means reevaluating what you do and why you do it. So what would be a practical example, like from, from your household, of, of figuring out what the shared standard is and what both parties can live with? So in my household, I think a lot of it came down to me giving up having everything done 
exactly how I wanted it. Um, things like like loading the dishwasher a certain way or having the laundry folded a certain way. Those were really just these strident examples of things that I did not need to have total control over. It does not matter how the towels are folded as long as they are folded and put away somewhere. It doesn't matter how the dishwasher is loaded as long as all the plates get cleaned. But having shared standards on, you know, let's eat dinner at this certain time so our kids don't turn into hungry monsters is a, a really good one to talk about when we're switching off on who's cooking dinner. I think it's going to be really different for each relationship, which standards you want to keep and which ones you want to sort of readjust or let go of. But I think that once you take a step back and really look at it and work on it together, it becomes a lot easier to see what your priorities are. How do you reconcile this if, um, well, I'm speaking from personal situation, you know, what if one partner's job is from an hour's standpoint um, more, significantly more demanding than the other? Do you feel like, you know, that obviously doesn't give any partner a free pass, but it may mean that an unequal division of labor or even division of emotional labor makes sense for that particular family. Because I found myself definitely doing a little bit of that comparing as I read, but also doing a lot of justifying like, well, I also don't work 14, 15 hour days, but that's a job requirement to my husband's field. Yeah. And I think the balance is going to look very different depending on your individual situation. The thing is, you can't be in charge of all of the emotional labor when your partner comes home. I think that is one of the big things that I hear is that, you know, you have a partner who works a very demanding job, but they come home and then don't take on any of the emotional labor. And it should really equal out when there are two of you there. And I think that while the balance will look different, while some people will take on considerably more emotional labor just because it makes sense with their situation, with the hours their partner works, it should never be that one person is taking all of it on and the other person is doing nothing. Or perhaps there might be an uneven split and that could be okay. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think we're looking for 50-50. I think 50-50 is a pipe dream, but you can find something that works for you. Well, I'd say that even no matter how demanding your partner's job is, they can be primarily responsible for managing the relationship with their family, for instance. Like it's, it, you know, if he's an adult, it's his responsibility to whether he's calling his relatives often enough. I mean, that's, that's just one of those things that I feel is like it's not has to be on you unless you tell yourself it's on you. And it really just does not have to be. But I, Gemma, I want to back up a little bit because I was, this Harper's Bazaar article it took on quite quite some legs, um, as, as you you saw. I'm sure you were getting you know notes from people who like met you when you were two or something. What did your husband think of it? Like, I mean, because he's being written about as the guy who's not putting the gift wrap away in an article that millions and millions and millions of people have read. I'm very curious how he how he reacted to that. Yeah. So I think when the initial article came out, it was a little bit hard for him because. Obviously, this is the first time in my entire freelance career that I have written anything remotely 
negative about my relationship. And of course, when I do that for the first time, it goes mega viral. So it was a really strange situation to be in talking to him about that. He knew that I had written the article and he's very supportive that whatever I feel that I need to write, I am welcome to write. It's not, he's never going to put limitations on what I can say about our relationship and how I feel about it. And so in that way, it was great. But he also had this reaction to it where he thought people were going to think he's the bad guy. He's like, everyone's going to think I'm this awful person reading this article. And I think what what I kept telling him was no one's going to see you when they look at this article. They're going to see themselves and their own partnership. And I think that made it a little easier. And then when it came time to write the book, we had to have a very serious conversation about how this was going to be a lot of our personal business out there in the world. Obviously, how I have written the book tells a lot about our journey and our marriage towards making emotional labor equal. And it was not an easy process. It was not always casting him in the best light. And he has done great. He's been really supportive and he's 100% on board. So I am really grateful that I have a partner who is really sure of himself and does not, I don't know, doesn't scare easy. He's really got some thick skin when it comes to the things that I've written. Yeah, it's just that was one the one thing that I kept kept wondering about. I also thought, I wonder what would happen if if my husband, you know, were to complain about me <laughs> in a publication. So, you know, because there's a lot of things that I don't do either, right? I, I think that's something that's always been helpful for me when I think about this conversation because I know that you know sometimes I have issues with with my husband and who's doing what. But then I think of uh, the various things that I don't even bother to take on. Um, but we can talk more about that in a minute. I want I want to get into your your book writing process because you were one of the things that actually changed a lot in your household while you're writing this is your husband was between jobs for a significant chunk of time while you were writing the book, right? I mean, you'd mostly been home with your kids, and then you guys had almost a complete role reversal. Yeah, it was a real. <laughs> it was really good for the book, actually, uh, because I. I agree. It was a great, I mean, you couldn't have planned it better. I could not have. It was really wonderful and it was really necessary. Honestly, when I think back on it, I don't know that I could have written this book the way it is now if my husband had not gotten laid off at pretty much the exact moment that I got my book deal because it really just shoved us headfirst into dealing with emotional labor 24 hours a day because he was at home for four months during the writing of this book. And we did go through almost a complete role reversal where I was working very long hours every day and he was at home with our kids all the time. So it was a totally new experience. And I think it really jump started our progress with emotional labor uh, because he was suddenly thrust into my life and into understanding all of the things that I do every single day. And that was really eye-opening for both of us. Well, what was easy for him to figure out how to take over? And then what was more complicated for him to figure out how to take over? 
I think everything was difficult for him to figure out how to take over. I'm, I'm not kidding. It was really challenging for him to take on this role. And I think probably the hardest part for him was learning the, I mean, the physical stuff was not terribly hard for him to start to take on, but realizing all of the things that need to be thought about when I sort of shoved all the emotional labor on him and was like, I'm sorry, I have to be in my room and write for like 15 hours a day. He had to figure out what needs to be done, what needs to be thought about. And you don't think about how much mental capacity that takes until you're the one doing it. And it was a totally new experience for him. And I think that's really difficult because emotional labor is a skill that we hone throughout our lives. And to be just thrown into it is really difficult. Uh, This is a skill that takes some time to learn. And my husband had to learn really fast. Well, what was there anything that sort of got dropped? Um, we're just trying to get some sort of practical examples of what emotional labor looks like and when, when somebody learns to figure it out. I mean, was there something that like didn't happen and then he learned to, to do? Oh, gosh, there were so many things. I'm trying to think of like a specific is- example. I use a few in the book. There was one where um, I write about in the book when I got my wisdom teeth out during this time. And I was like, oh, he'll be fine. He'll get everything taken care of. And I thought that he had everything under control. I also thought that I was going to be fine the next morning. And I woke up in immense pain, like couldn't couldn't move. And a lot of things went undone that morning. My son didn't have all the things he needed for school. He hadn't checked the school email to see that it was like his special electronics day. So he didn't have that. He didn't have a snack. He hadn't packed lunches for half the kids. I mean, it was, it was just a mess. And it was, I I don't know. He just dropped, he dropped a lot of stuff that day. And there were many days like that where things would just go to hell because he wasn't used to constantly being on. He wasn't used to constantly thinking about this needs to be done, then this needs to be done, then this needs to be done. And so he'd get a few of the things, but not all of the things. This does make me question if my standards are lower, though. And I can't blame it on the fact that you have fewer kids than I do, because we both have three, but like the number of dress-up days for elementary school that I have been like, Oh, well. And I realized it on the way to work or something. And then yesterday I even said to my daughter, I was like, you can read now. So here's your school calendar. And if you want to dress it up, that's your problem. Cause I can't like remember all these days. So I guess like, I mean, well, it just speaks to a little bit like, you know, depending on where you're, I'm not saying that that fits into the, like, let it go context that you mentioned, but I mean, I guess I just to play devil's advocate was like, was all that emotional labor labor that truly needed to happen that day? Or was it a lesson in like, you know what, your kid's dressed and they get to school pretty on time? I mean, your husband figures out that that's okay. My son was definitely crying when he got to school because he realized that he didn't have everything that he needed and he was not having a real great day because of it. I try and do things that matter for, you know, each kid. And so I think I think it really does depend on your kid and how your family operates. 
I yeah, I don't know. The things that went undone that day were things that I was like, no, these definitely needed to be done. And it's just because my son had been really looking forward to this day, like having the special electronics day was a big deal to him. There have been a lot of like crazy hat day and hair day things that I'm just like, I didn't even know this happened. It doesn't matter. But I, this was a this was a bigger this was thing. like a yeah. bigger thing that he had been looking forward to that did not get done. Yeah, I th- I would say with Sarah though, there I mean, there's certainly. I know that we all have a, a tendency, I, I think men and women, to not see the work our partners do. And so when, you know, obviously a lot of the labor that women have done over the years has just been completely ignored by everyone because it's not male. And so therefore it hasn't been valued at, at all. But when I think about it, I mean, there's things that like, I mean, to give one example that I was talking about with Sarah earlier. So my husband's extended family has this fantasy football league <laughs> and he has enrolled three of our children in this. Let's just say, I find this whole thing like kind of stupid. Like why on earth would anyone spend their time on the fantasy football? But in order to keep these children happy that they're not losing to grandma constantly, you know, he's monitoring their trades. He's making sure that, you know, they've, they've thought about it, checking in with them you know, talking with them about the wide receivers, have they done it? Like I have done nothing with this, right? Um, Because I don't think it's worth anything. On the other hand, like he may feel the same way about piano practice, right? So like certainly my husband's never telling the kids to practice the piano, but I think he kind of views that as like, I view fantasy football, that, you know, why on earth would we be doing this? You know, if the kids don't want to do it, why are you making them do it? So I, I I don't know. I, I wonder if there there's some aspect of all of us have a bit of a blind spot when we see the things that, that our partners do. I'm sure that that's very true. And I think what you're describing your husband doing is absolutely emotional labor. And that's wonderful to be taking that he is taking that part in their lives and, you know, doing all of this. That's very, very much emotional labor because he's doing this work that's sort of invisible and thankless and also is caring deeply about your children and their happiness. And I think that it's really easy to miss that. But I I think by and large, the reason that I was writing Fed Up was that it's so much more common for women to be doing this type of work and for it to go completely unnoticed that I think it it deserves looking at sort of the culture that we were raised in and why women so often feel that it's necessary to do this work and that there is no changing it. No, I agree with you. And I think, I think, um, you know, the fact that we tend to come up with examples, (laughs) you know, we can't come, we almost can't come up with our own examples because it's just so everything. So it's like the exceptions that we think of where, where, where the husbands tend to take over and, you know, career aside, it does tend to be extremely consistent across families, whether or not both parents work, one parent works, who has the bigger job. So I think your overarching, I think this book was a really important one. And I think uh, I'm really glad you, you, you brought some of these um, discussions to light. Oh, so what does a day in the life of Gemma look like now? I mean, obviously things are, things are changing a lot. Um, your kids are all in school now, right? That, that's one thing that's uh, changed a little bit. Yes, that's a big change, um, having all three of my kids in school. The youngest is only doing half days, three days a week. So I don't have that much more, you know, just solo time. I have 
nine hours a week where I am at home and there are no children, but that is nine hours more than I had in the last eight years. So that's a lot to me. Right now, my life is definitely in flux because I am currently, as of this recording, waiting for the book to come out. And so I'm doing a little bit of freelancing here and there. And But what my day typically looks like now that my husband is back at work, I'm gearing up for my book release, is that I get up, I do all the stuff to get the kids out the door. I no longer make their lunches. My husband has just taken it upon himself now to get up every morning and make everyone the lunches. I don't know if it was the fight that we had after the wisdom tooth removal and the lunch is not getting packed, but they are packed every day. And I get the kids off to school. They go to two different schools because the younger is in preschool and the older two are in elementary. On the days that they're all in school, I'll usually come home, do work of some sort, uh, whether that means doing interviews for the book or working on freelance or working on creating a proposal for my next book. And it's very quickly, um, those three hours fly by and then it's time to go pick up the kids. Usually I like to spend some time just getting my younger one outside in the backyard and I sit back there and read. Reading's a really big priority for me. So I'll usually spend a couple hours reading and, you know, doing the occasional tending to snacks and playtime and whatever, you know, the needs of a three-year-old are before I go and pick up the older ones. And then it's sort of home, doing homework, getting everyone ready for dinner time. And my husband comes home around the time that the kids are having dinner. I'll usually go to an evening yoga class and then sort of wind down, have dinner and go to bed. I don't do a lot of watching TV. I usually track my time. Uh, (laughs) I've been doing it ever since I read... Um, I don't know how she does it. And so I'm really I'm really strict about my schedule. I can kind of see what it looks like every day. Um, usually before I go to bed, I do a little bit of planning for the next day. If there's anything that I want to fit in, I'll make sure it makes it into one of my time slots. But yeah, that's what a regular day looks like for me. And when did you do your writing when you were, you know, when you had little kids at home underfoot the whole time? I would do my writing either very early in the morning or at night. I would get up at 5.30 and write for a couple of hours or hour and a half, however long it was until the kids woke up. Generally, when I was doing morning writing, they would tend to wake up really early. Um, So I would... Just to mess with you, right? (laughs) Oh oh my gosh. I was just like, I'm going to get up at 5 today and I'm going to get so much writing done. Someone would wake up at 5.15 every time. So I... That is like the current story. Yes, it's so difficult, (laughs) especially when they're really young. And so I would do a lot of my writing when my husband came home from work. Uh, I would set hours so that I would, you know, hit the goal that I wanted to. Um, I also have my kids in sports that allow me to write. (laughs) So I have my daughter in gymnastics And that's just like an hour and a half block of work time. My son does rock climbing. That's a couple hours of work time. And both are really convenient places to work where my kids are off doing their thing and I can work. 
But yeah, it was really a lot of stolen hours on the fringe edges of my day. And it's a lot nicer to have these set hours every every other day where I'm working. Yeah. And you don't do a lot of outsourcing. No, I, I don't do any outsourcing. I should probably do more. Yeah, we're we're big fans of that here. You might like it. <laughs> like it. And and I know, you know, you mentioned and I there was a couple of mentions of outsourcing and and I definitely agree that not every, you know, hired nanny or babysitter is, is paid fairly or well, but there's no rule that says you don't that you can't pay them fairly or well or, or hire someone that's educated or truly to give them a truly good job. So I guess um again, just playing devil's advocate just to something that you mentioned it's not necessarily something that that can be written off with the, you know, with just a statement like, you know, that we're using low paid labor or that, that we're getting work done on the backs of low paid people. Cause I, uh, that, you know, I, I really did appreciate a, a lot of what you said, but I just felt like there was a little bit of a commentary I, or a counterpoint I wanted to make to that, that side of things. Yeah, no, I mean, there are absolutely people who pay well for, people to, you know, clean their homes or to watch their children. The point that I am making in the book is that by and large, we as a society do not value this work and we really do not pay well for this type of work. So the point being with there that, I mean, all this sort of female labor has long been undervalued, right? Yes. And that uh, this is one aspect of, of female labor that, that has been undervalued over time. You know, we maybe maybe Sarah and I will do a, a follow up episode sometimes on the uh, <laughs> things we've done to uh, move some of our emotional labor to to other people. But uh, you know, it's it's definitely a conversation that all all couples should should have in in terms of what you do, what you care about, what shared you know shared standards and, and all that. And so it's great to have a new language to to deal with that. Um, so Gemma, we, we do a segment each week where we talk about our, our loves of the week, like things that we are really liking this week. We can go first so you can kind of figure out if you want to do something totally different or similar or whatever. So Sarah, how about you? I will mention uh, the single Bob running stroller. So we, um, my husband and I are both runners and we have both a single and a double Bob because they've come in handy in different situations where the, the kids are different ages. The single had kind of been like, in the back of our shed and not used for a long period of time. And then we kind of realized like, Hey, Genevieve's our baby is old enough for this. And it has, Oh, poor kid. I hear her now. But, um, so before I get her, I will just say that she has loved running in it and it has made it much easier to run when she gets up early sometimes, which has been um, a boon for the other parents. Probably. Yeah. No, I said those, mo those moments when you've uh, woken up at 5am to get stuff done and the kid is up at 515. Now Sarah can go do her run with the, with the single Bob. So my my thing is is you know some of the toys we've bought like get no use and some some toys have been used by all the kids. I was just thinking we bought this like tractor um, that you can drive around the backyard. And I was outside with my three year old who's our youngest the other day, and he's just having such a grand old time driving it loops around the backyard. Um, you know, in the fall leaves, and I realized like all of my kids have done that. Like all four of them have driven around in this tractor in the fall leaves, just having a grand old time. Uh, hopefully it'll make them better drivers when they are 16 years old, uh, now that they already know how to put something in reverse, uh, that that's a, that's a skill that's evolved. But yeah, that's, we've, we've really enjoyed those, those things and, uh, hasn't torn up the grass too bad, I guess. Gemma, you got anything for us? Um, so this week I 
discovered this new app called Libby, and it's just a simple e-reader app that hooks up to your library card. And I have never been much of an e-reader, but now that I have this app on my phone and I can just check out books from the library, I find that I'm reading a lot more when I would be like tempted to hit Instagram and scroll mindlessly. So it's helping me get a little bit more reading done and I love it. Ooh, great idea. We're always looking for ways to use our, our phones better yeah. <laughs> rather than just yeah. scrolling around. I also <laughs> made sure I, I put yes. the app where my Instagram app was because that's the thing that gets me. Like <laughs> I'll click on Instagram and just mindlessly scroll. So I I switched where my Instagram app was and put that one in its place. So I'm just like, oh, I can read a book. Oh, <laughs> ooh. That's good. That's a good, good hack. Good right there. Yeah, that's been awesome. Well, Gemma, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, that was fascinating. Um, thanks for that. So our question this week comes from a listener who has a child care and work-related question. We get a lot of those, but we love them. So please keep sending them in. Anyway, she's a postdoc who plans to transition into an industry position within the next year or two. Um, her particular field, she says her work in theory can be done anywhere. Um, and, and currently she works from home three days a week and commutes into her institution on the other two. She has three kids, ages five, four, and one. Well, the day she works from home, she stops working when the kids come home between three and four. The day she does commute, she does not come home until 530. They currently have a babysitter come to the house from four to 530 because obviously her husband is, is working too. And so the, the one-year-old I figured out is in daycare during the day. Uh, so, so the sitter is mostly because the older kids are done with school at four. Anyway, in the past year, we've gone through four babysitters with varying degrees of success. Um, some of them did not work out long-term. They didn't get well along with the kids or with her. Um, finally, they have on the fifth try someone awesome, and they are absolutely thrilled. Um, however, the kids are still complaining about the whole idea of coming home to a sitter in general. Um, and asking whether this could be a day where mommy could be home. They are definitely intense children, she says. I think they just feel after a long day of um, daycare and school, they just want a parent around. The point of this, as she transitions into a full-time job, is she is wondering how important it is for her to be there when her kids come home. Um, basically, because of her location, she's in a, a suburb outside of big city, um, you know, the suburb is where her husband works, but her commute, she's probably going to wind up in the big city. So she's going to be commuting like an hour. Um, and half of her feels like, you know, she just needs to get over that and deal with it and accept the fact that her kids are going to come home to a sitter. And that's the way it is. Um, the other half is wondering if she needs to find some sort of job where she can leave at 2.30 p.m. to get home in time, that maybe she needs to have a part-time or less than ideal position that's in her local area in exchange for the ability to be home for her kids. So basically, her question is, any strategies um, if the kids aren't happy being watched by anyone other than their parents? Um, any comforting research that knows she's not damaging her kids? And any advice on the general balance between making your kids happy by being around for them emotionally versus just, you know, making sure that they're they're physically safe? So Sarah, did you want to quick say what you had, had thought of when you, you got this one? I, I wrote her a longer answer. Yeah, like I mean, I have, an, I have a few things. Well, and I, another one just came to me now as you read that last part. So she... I'm going to repeat what she said. General balance between making your kids happy by being around for them emotionally versus making them happy by providing for their physical needs. I think one factor she left out of this equation is her own happiness and fulfillment because that is not a separate variable. How happy she is and how well she feels like she's doing at work is probably going to influence how she behaves around them, how happy she is, how, you know, 
does she feel like she's fulfilled so she can really attend to them? Or does she sort of have a yearning to be doing something else the whole time and is unhappy? So I think that's like not an independent variable. It's kind of something that's important to integrate into the decision making itself, um, even though it might not seem obvious. So her happiness and her career fulfillments. So I think this requires a lot of soul searching. I think she needs to think less about what is best for the kids necessarily. And Laura will speak to that in a moment because I don't think that's going to be something obvious to figure out and figure out what she truly wants to do. And I think this might be an instance where it's worth um, a pilot period because even if she did convince herself that maybe it was going to damage her kids or alter their behaviors in some ways, I don't think anyone would argue that trying it for six to 12 months to see what happens would be a damaging thing. And I think it would be much easier to ramp down from a a more ideal job than to take a less than ideal job or a part-time job and then try to ramp up later. So I think that she should go for what she wants career-wise, even if she thinks of it in her mind as a trial basis, um, and then take it from there. Yeah. No, I think that's good. I I, I think, you know, first, I'm really sorry for her that she had to go through five sitters, but I mean, I think one, and that's going to be tough on her and the kids right there, like part of what she's you know, seeing as the intensity and, and neediness is partly that the kids have gone through a lot of people. But I mean, part of what's going on there is that she's only hiring a sitter for three hours a week, right? Like four to five thirty, two days a week. And there's not that many people who want that job. Like unless you are paying a hundred dollars an hour and there's not that many people who want to work three hours a week. And so your your pool is going to be necessarily more limited um, which makes it harder to find and keep keep good people. Which made me say, you know, first of all, why did they choose this as their childcare setup? You know, it, it may be that they thought this was most economical to have the little one in, in daycare and then have this the sitter afterwards uh, versus having a full time nanny for the one year old. Right. Who would then be there when the other kids got home from school um, would would be the person who was always there. And, and so they get to know that person over time and probably build the relationship from from there. So, you know, that could have been an option. Otherwise, I mean, maybe the one-year-old could stay in daycare for more hours and the the four and five-year-old could go to some sort of aftercare program where there'd be other kids, there'd be their friends, um, or even if it was like a more informal one where it was a group setting, so they'd be hanging out with their friends. um, That might be something they were more happy about um, in in that sort of setup. So first I would say like maybe the childcare setup is not ideal. And, you know, again, she's been in school. She's now transitioning into a full-time industry job. She's going to be earning more money that may be somewhere to look to put the money, right? That that might, especially if she's going to be commuting an hour into this big city, um, they may wish to have another adult around to deal with a lot of this stuff that is going to be hard, you know, for if her husband's job doesn't have a whole lot of flexibility, if there's like an early day for snow or a sick kid or something like that, um, they may be wanting to to look more at the, the nanny option anyway. You know, I, th- I think... I, I don't buy that they're really unhappy about being cared for somebody other than their parents. I think they obviously prefer their parents, but the, the older children go to school and they're not complaining about going to school per se. Like they're being there with their teachers their whole day. So they're into other adults. It's it's just this particular setup um, that I, I think they're they're also sensing that, that mom feels some misgivings about it. And I, I feel like kids, when they know it's complicated for their parents, we'll, we'll push on that too. Um, whereas if the mom is just like, well, this is the way it is, then then they don't. Uh, there's absolutely no research that she's hurting her kids by not being there when they get home. Of course, there's no research that she's helping them either. It's just that there's no 
way to do a good study on this. And I mean, what variable are you looking at and how a kid turns out? Like, are you looking at, you know, if they had a sitter when they were six, whether they graduate from high school? I mean, I I don't know. Like, are you looking at whether they're happy when they're 25? What is your endpoint variable? I have no idea. You wouldn't be able to design a study that way. And, 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 you know, these things are also intertwined in the sense that kids need time and money. Obviously, if mom is working more hours, there's less time with the kids often. On the other hand, there's more money. And for for many families, it's it's not an insignificant question whether mom works or not in terms of the family's well-being. So I, I think there's there's also, you know, hard to tease that out. So, you know, I think that, as Sarah said, you know, she should try to find a really good job she loves and is happy about. And then she can figure out what would be the situation that the kids would, you know, find best, um, how they could, the child care should support her at her job. If a year in, it is completely not working and they are unhappy and she's had her best go and created a childcare situation that does afford her a lot of support and it's still not working, then, then fine, you know, figure out something else. But you're probably better off trying and then seeing where you need to go from there rather than just assuming it can't work because of some story you're telling yourself that you absolutely have to be home when your kids get off the bus or else you're a bad parent, which I think is Ooh, a gonna, story that's going there. Yeah. I'm going to throw in one other thing that I, I thought of as I'm listening to this and reading this, which is that um, perhaps they, if they did decide that, you know, the kids are better off having, having a parent home twice a week, that could be her once a week and her husband once a week. So perhaps she could find a dream job or use PTO where she leaves work early a couple of one, one day a week, you know, and then maybe he could leave one day a week and then they've gotten the same kind of balance that they, they have with this current setup without, without as much of a sacrifice. So that was one other yeah. idea. And and I, and it's one of those also ones where you want to do the gender flip and see how this would sound if a dad was writing it. And I can't really picture that. Yeah. And I also, I mean, her idea that she's somehow hurting her children by having them with three hours with the sitter now, I, I just, I have trouble seeing this. I mean, these kids are so incredibly lucky to have two loving, caring and employed parents. I mean, <laughs> I really don't think it's the the three hours at the sitter is one way or another in, in the whole grand scheme of things. So anyway, this has been Best of Both Worlds. We've been talking with Gemma Hartley about emotional labor. So tune in next week for more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.